dinga boom dinga boom the finley the finley boom dinga boom the on film years ago i um not too many like five years ago i was living out my cliche dream i was a writer in oh. new york i mean i never was a new yorker but i lived there for a couple of years and i was writing and I finished the first book while I was out there, the first terrible book that sold less than 500 copies to this day. I mean, I'm just sort of a minor, minor character in a Fitzgerald novel or something. But I, um, I came out to California um, having just, pub- the book was just published, and I came out to do a reading in California. And so I invited um, everyone I knew to, c- to come see me, and it was this exciting event for me. You know, I'm a writer from New York, and I'm in California, and I, I have my book. And um, one of the people who shows up at my reading is my now wife. And that was sort of the beginning of, of our um, romance. And I'd known her years before, but I came to this reading and I was like, oh my God, she, she showed up. My wife, the woman who became my wife, showed up. And um, I was like, I want to make this happen. I want to like, I, I, mm-hmm. she's beautiful and I want to make this happen somehow. So I did my breast, be, my breast, my breast, breast. My best prancing around in these hot lights in the, the, the summer of California and mm-hmm. reading my um, mm-hmm. my long-winded poetry and um, and I you know sort of looking at her out of the side off to the side every once in a while and I even had a move which was now we laugh at it because it's the worst move ever but she came up to buy my book and I had gone to grad school with her to get uh, we both got our MFAs at the, at the same school. And, and she came up about my book and she asked me to sign it. And I, this was my move. And in my mind, it was, oh, this is going to seal the fucking deal with this woman. I wrote, to perhaps my favorite MFA peer. And then signed it, like slid it her way, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so this woman somehow fell for it because, you know, down the road, she became my wife. You know, we started dating bi-coastally and, and, and she became... My wife, and so that's the story of of her, and she's a great wife, and she's a great mother. But also, I think at that event, notable is that my mother showed up, and she looked over the object of my desire and came over and introduced herself before I could introduce myself to my future wife, mm-hmm. and said the following to her: "Hello, I'm Joseph's mother, mm-hmm. and that's my mother." My mother is somebody who has always been there uh-huh. for me, uh-huh. always a little bit overprotective, uh-huh. um, always someone that I'm not embarrassed about the fact that she's overprotective, uh-huh. um, and somebody who's just been super in my life. Tom, well, I was wondering what we were going to talk about, but apparently it's going to be Robert Altman. So, so, so your mother, Tom? <laughs> my mother? Uh, yeah. So... Um, when I was a child, uh, yeah, I have nothing good to say. <laughs> yeah, we both, experience with my Tom mother. hates his mother and I hate Tom's mother too. So we're, we're on the same side. So we yeah, come here like we, I have a great mother and Tom has a fucking terrible mother. So yeah. happy mother's day, everyone, because this is our mother's day podcast. And we're yeah. going to talk about two films that involve mothers yeah. and whether they're great mothers or mm-hmm. not so great mothers, mm-hmm. we can sort of suss that out as we go along, but yeah. It's our Mother's Day podcast. It's our Mother's Day podcast. I like it. Just, just, yeah, like this, this breathing that everyone can hear that tells you that I'm overweight. Now, that's my mom. So everybody just, 
Send her some vibes of love right there. And by that, Tom means that he's eaten his mother, and she's breathing out her last sort of gasps of help. Help! I, well, no, because if that were true, then you would all in, there would be nobody alive in this room here as that gas escaped from me. Because wow. it would be filled with evil. I kind of see your mother's point all I'm of a kidding. sudden. Yeah, maybe I should take responsibility. <laughs> what am I saying? Let's not. So the first movie I think we want to talk about is 1949's White Heat. Oh, yeah. Starring James Cagney. James Cagney. Edmund O'Brien. A, f- a fabulous Edmund O'Brien. A young Edmund O'Brien. Very and, nice to see. And a beautiful uh, Virginia Mayo. Oh, yeah. Have you seen Virginia Mayo before, Tom? I want to say I have, but I can't place where I have. She's most I'm not famous good at that as a rule. Other than this film, um, uh, for her part in um, 1946, is the best years of our lives. And it's kind of the same role in a weird way, which is this. She's the gold-digging blonde. Hmm. Her, she's the object of, of every man's desire. Mm-hmm. But, and, and she even as she's faking it, she personifies the woman who's so beautiful that you you can live with her faking it for a while. Right. But you know that it's only rottenness, only rotten wood underneath that carpet. Well, you'd like to think you are, but but probably you only are if you're like, you know, like a a well put together Cagney-ish sort of a dude. You know what I'm saying? Like like a lot of guys probably do fall into that spell. But if you're Cagney, Nobody really fools you for any length of time. I don't agree with that necessarily. I mean, but I'm, I could argue a little, a little Cagney characteristics with you for <laughs> definitely. I do like this, what he says about her. And I'd say the same thing about you, Tom. Um, baby, you'd look good in a shower curtain. Oh, dude, I would look good in a shower curtain. And you know what? I'd look remarkably comfortable. Yeah, in a shower curtain, as yeah. opposed to these pants. Oh, boo! So, so Virginia Mayo plays that role, and I don't know why I bring her up first, only because she she's sort of. Um, I think a lot of people in this film fall into some of their original categories, if you will. What do you call that? Typecasting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cagney had been doing this since like 1930 or something like that. So he's 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 sort of a veteran at this point. And he's only actually only five years away from like Mr. Five or six years away from Mr. Roberts. Right. His, the, his attempt to sort of break away from the yeah, you know, the typecasting that that had really sort of dominated his, his world. Well, so he's two things, right? He's he's obviously um, a gangster. Mm-hmm. That's like the number one, like Warner Brothers lot gangster gimme, right? Yeah. And then he's a hoofer, right? He's he, yes, yeah, yeah, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. I mean, like, but he's a hoofer, but he didn't get a chance to sort of you know exercise that particular area of his talent until Yankee Doodle Dandy as far as i know i'm not sure i'm not aware of any other dance number in any other movie he ever did so it was always something that i know that he wanted to get back to and it took him a long time to be able to get enough star power to be able to push that through the system. James Cagney was also the very first actor that I was obsessed with when I started getting into classic film. And mm-hmm. I would do the thing that somebody else we know, namely your father, would do, which is I would hold the um, my horrible, I had a horrible um, Radio Shack sort of front loader cassette player with a, and a, I bought an attachment microphone. Mm-hmm. And one of these old movies would come on, I would hold the microphone in front of the little television speaker, and then I would take this sort of you know two or two and a half hours worth of cassette tape, put it in the dual deck cassette tape oh, recorder, yeah. and mm-hmm. then edit the films down to a one hour like radio version right. without any of the silent bits. Mm-hmm. So I used to do that with Cagney, and, and one of the things I liked about him immediately, and, and I think I, I started finding myself falling into these categories later on with like Humphrey Bogart, William Holden, is that there are always two or more things at once. They're likable, but also sort of vicious. 
or they fall in love easily, but they're also kind of cynical at the same time. They're always these two things. And, and right. I think James Cagney is always these two things. He's got that sort of look like, you mug, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the lug on you or something like that. Yeah. And at the same time, he's kind of naive about the world. He tends to be. Actually, I think this is probably his, well, in some senses, one of his least ones. Because the other one I could think of, again, you're much more into Cagney than I, than I ever mm-hmm. have been. Yeah. Um, so that's really your specialty. But... Like even in like the Roaring Twenties, he was that night. He was the gangster, sure. Yeah, he had his own sense of ruthlessness, but he had a code of honor. And you're right, there was this underlying naivete. He's the bootlegger who only drinks milk in that movie until the woman finally breaks his heart, and he mm. he drinks. He has his first shot of whiskey, and then the next thing you know, he's on Skid Row, brokenhearted right. and drunk all the time. Right, 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 and and no long, and and barely owns like the one cab left. Right, so that's the Roaring Twenties. In this case, it's a it's it's really interesting because I think it's it's. Um, it's an it's an expression of sort of co- more complexity in crime in crime movies. I think is one of the things that comes through in White Heat, uh-huh. specifically psychological complexity. Yeah. It's starting to really kind of break through. People are like writing scripts for crime uh, crime movies and then applying sort of Freudian and or Jungian you know concepts to them and and just trying to you know mine those for ultimately you know for 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 backstory and, and things like that. And that really comes in. Very heavy in white heat. Are we trying to sell an episode to NPR? Mm, no, we're trying to put yeah. everybody to sleep. Oh my god! Yeah, it just heard yeah. us for the first time. <laughs> Holy shit! Did we go academic for like twelve minutes there? The Jungian paradigm. Oh, oh my god! Suck a ball. All oh right. My. So um, Cagney is so he's nineteen years into his career at this point, and he's got that sort of you know that sort of in shape, out of shape body I like to refer to, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and more than that, he's also he's showing he's starting to show his age a little. Bit yeah, physically. So he plays a role, and this is happening a lot with like the Desperate Hours and 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 different films like that, where somebody is is called to to play a role they might or Picnic's another one, William Holden, they they might be a little too old for. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this is a film about James Cagney as the kind of psychotic leader of a, a band of desperados. Right? Yeah, this in this one, he's more ruthless than I remember him being in any other movie I've ever seen. No, this is where I have to turn you on to more Cagney. He's, okay. I mean, Public Enemy is fucking really ruthless, but I mean, there are a few of them that are actually ruthless. Is he just like, he just, un, just without conscience or hesitation or even apparent thought, he does some really, Shitty really things. vicious shit in this Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, whole, the whole film begins with this problem. Every good film begins with a problem. Every mm-hmm. good story does. And the problem is that they've, they've robbed a train and in the process of robbing a train, one of their members has uh, accidentally got like a shot to the face with the, the steam engine from the train right. and he's burned with, with the, the, the steam. And so they, they escape, they go back to some sort of mountain cabin and mm-hmm. it's clear that they're going to have to leave him behind, which right. is again a trope. We see that in the Wild Bunch, movies like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're going to have to leave him behind, but we're also introduced to the, the full entourage, which is Virginia Mayo, the aforementioned Virginia Mayo, who's mm-hmm. a hot tomato, but then also... Big Ed. Big Ed. Big Ed and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, his mother. And Mama. So yes. Cody is the mm-hmm. character played by James Cagney, and his mother is, I would say, maybe more ruthless than than James Cagney's character in that she's cool as a cucumber. She doesn't flap at all. She and, hands a gun to her son at any time and just says, you know what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Like, get rid of these. And he is yet mother dear, mother knows yep. what to do. She you, always knows. You, you, you see the trail of, of his ruthlessness coming directly from her. Like, Mother's milk shit. This is the film, by the way, that we're. If there's a parallel, this is Ma, This is uh, Tom's mother. Yes, absolutely. We're, so, we'll be moving on soon. Yeah. So, so um, 
so the problem is that uh, so so anyway, mother hands James Cagney a gun and says, "Look, we're leaving. We're we're, we're getting out of this mountain town, mm -hmm. um, and so you need to get rid of the guy that we're that With we're burns, quote unquote yeah. leaving behind because he can he can name us, right? He can pin us, right. and so Cagney gives the gun to an underling." who doesn't want to go through with it. He's a friend of the burned guy, mm -hmm. goes inside and, and shoots a few shots into the air right. and fakes the guy's death. So what happens is eventually there's some sort of trail, something implicating Cagney. Well, it's almost actually, uh, it, it actually gets a little bit stupid at that point because the guy didn't shoot the guy on the couch, uh, but the, he still managed to leave him there to freeze in the cabin and they found the body. Yeah, he fucked up for sure. But but the point is they're able to trace this and whole sort boom, of robbery. They trace it back to Cagney, right. And also a murder. Yeah. Now, because of you know, negligence to this guy who, who... Right. And as I recall, I think there was a murder during the train robbery as well. So it was like a double Two or a triple. Murders, you're right. He's ruthless. Yeah. But the mother is the fuck. She's fucked uh, up. She is. She, now, one of the other things, too, is like he has psychosomatic stuff going on. Yep. Too. Again, we're talking about that that whole uh, real boring psychological shit earlier. No, but it's not but, so boring. You're but right. it Go is ahead. brought in, and it's brought in, in by the police who are doing the investigation. Emmett O'Brien is, is, is part of the investigation of him. And what they do is they talk about like how he, in order to get her attention over the years, I don't know how they got this detail, by the way, but they got it. And the detail is, is over the, in order to get attention over the years, he faked headaches mm. so oh, much yeah, from yeah. his mom. And he, he did it so well that now... He has these blazing. Oh, you're migraines. talking about the exposition to the audience yeah, that, that yeah. he started faking the headaches, but they became real. But but then they became real. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And we see manifestate that's one of the ways, you know, whenever he gets stress around his mother, like that pops in. Well, there's a great also sort of like um uh, uh what do you call it when family members sleep together? I'm losing the word. Oh, uh, incestuous. An incestuous, um, uh, homoerotic um, sort of element to the film, I think, with Edmund O'Brien. Now, Edmund O'Brien was still mm -hmm. a young Hollywood star. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'd done DOA, which was the mm -hmm. next year. No, yeah. He'd done the Shanghai story. But he's, he's, he plays a certain type. Mm -hmm. um, and in this film, he plays an, uh, an undercover um, FBI agent is it, is it not FBI? It's it's federal. It's probably Treasury. No honestly, one gives a shit at all. But anyway, so 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 who who his specialty is basically um, going undercover by being a cellmate, right? right. Sort of Brubaker. getting like like convicted quotes around that, and then mm -hmm. sort of spending time with people and ratting. I don't know how he continues to do this. I, by what, the way, that has got to be the world's most shitty job. I would hate. I was thinking as I was you know, watching like, it. It, 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 terrible food and possible anal rape. And but what are the, what's the four hundred one k like for this? Not bad, Tom. Yeah, no. Tom Smith will be appearing, by the way, in Oakland at the Octopus Literary Salon with more of that magic on May 23rd, a Tuesday of this year. I just want to plug you right there. I, I appreciate that, but we ought to do the business at the beginning or the end. But that was that's a good fine, move. I'll right. plug you when I want to plug you. I'll oh, plug you yeah. later. Oh, yeah, you plug me. All right, so. Um, nasty little plugger. I was you? thinking the same thing, though. Like, what a fucking terrible job. <laughs> Is that a mole? Is that what they call that? Yeah, I guess it is a mole of some kind. I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do you piss off in the police academy for somebody to come up with that? Well, and that's the thing. Shuffle it's, you off into that shit. Of course, he's like, they, the first shot of, uh, of O'Brien, he comes in with, like, a fishing reel. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. this is set up badly. Like, what do, what's that? It's a fishing reel. I can't wait to finally go fishing. It's like, that's off, buddy. Right. Because you're going to have to go to jail. Now, what's happened is um, Cagney has brilliantly... By the way, this is one of those things where... Well, so so Cagney's idea is I will cop to a different crime right. that will only garner me like two years in prison mm -hmm. to avoid that took place at the same time as these murders to avoid being implicated for this murder. 
And I don't know how that works, but I'm always curious as to why they give these things away in films. Because as soon as I heard that, I thought, why aren't more people doing that all the time? That's exactly what I would do right. now, having seen White Heat. Mm-hmm. But okay, so... Probably because most criminals are, are fundamentally not bright. But the, the reason, to bring it back to the whole sort of like incestuous, homoerotic aspect is, one of the things that they say outright is, you need to get in there, be his cellmate, but also become the mother, mother in a way. Which is to like mm-hmm. befriend him... Tell him everything he does is great. Massages, Soothe his headaches. Massages, yeah. taint, just all those things. October 25th. And a mother Oakland, does. The, the Octopus Literary is <laughs> So anyway, so this is the setup. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, it, like uh, here's what I'm saying already. I think that we both like this. Am I right that you like this movie? I love this movie. Love this movie a lot. So much movie. that we're actually doing the thing that kids do when they see a movie they like. And you say, what was it about? And they go, well, first this happened, and then this happened, and uh-huh. then this happened. Because it's, I'm just excited about this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful movie. Um, and the ending is great. It's got one of the great all-time <laughs> ending lines of all time. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah, but it's also got, uh, in, a, in, a, in a film that didn't use many special effects, mm-hmm. it has it tags on, at the very last moment, one of the worst special effects of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, no big deal. This yeah. is the time period, by the way. Late, late 1940s, we're talking like Burt Lancaster and Criss Cross. We're talking Bogart mm-hmm. and Dark Passage. I think this is the, the, the strongest, maybe outside of Jules de Sainte's like mid-50s French noir period. <laughs> I think that this is, I know. <laughs> Jules de Sainte, as you read. Uh, oh, God damn it. We're, we're going to hell. That's okay. But, but, I, but I think it's, it's probably the strongest period of, of Hollywood noir. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And this was... And this was definitely like uh, like first off, it's a great uh, it's a great example of it, and at the same time, I mean, it's uh, it took advantage of it at the same time, you know? It yeah. Was, because because you'd say like Cagney has always been in the criminal, the gangster thing. This was one of his first moves into noir. Yeah. Like his like this is genuinely a noir with Cagney in it. Yeah, but it's kind of one of the only noir Cagney really, right? Because yeah. it was like Warner Brothers late thirties, sort of like <coughs> Angels with Dirty Faces. You know, mm-hmm. he's a bad guy, but he's really got a heart of gold. Right. And he does not have a heart of gold in this thing. And never comes he has a out. Rotten heart, and his mother has a more rotten heart. Yeah, and Virginia closest, Mayo has a, a Mayo has a rotten heart. Right. The closest he gets to having a, like a decent gold, you know, a decent bone in his body is when he trusts the guy in prison that he should not be trusting. Like but only say, because of the guy is a substitute for his mother. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great film. Yeah. Wonderful film. Total. Happy thumbs. Mo- watch it with your mother on ha- Mother's Day. Happy, happy mom. Thumbs up. Or if you're Tom, watch it by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. With with a cake. Yeah, nice. Mm. I just thought that would be a great segue for some reason. Mm. I have segue ideas. Mm, That's a good segue. All right, fuck you, Tom. What's our next film? Oh, our next film. Gosh, I'm not sure I can decide about this one. Uh, but I think I do have an idea. We're going to be talking about a fabulous little film. Uh, this is, again, reflective of uh, Joseph's mother. Uh, and um, it's called uh, Psycho. Only in that I love my mother so much, I plan to keep her in the basement. Absolutely. And, gone. and her skin Which is remarkably well maintained. So, My mother? or uh, Yes, your mother's skin. Okay. It's nice. So okay. I talk- love your mother. What are you talking about? Stay away, buddy. Well, come on now. We're talking about 1960s Psycho. Yes. The Absolutely. One of penultimate the... uh, Hitchcock film. Did he make anything better than Psycho after Psycho? The answer is no, by the way. No, the answer is no. Yeah. No, the answer with the birds? No. Birds I mean, the birds. The birds. I like the, bir- uh, the birds. is okay. Split. 
There, there, there comes a point where like, that was the end of him being able to ride the coattails of being Hitchcock, I think. Yeah, I guess so. And this, and and God bless, God bless him. He went out with a freaking bang with this goddamn movie. This is a great film. It really is. Have you seen it on the big screen, by the way? I have. I have seen it on the big screen with a full orchestra backing it. Uh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck my you, Freudian awesomeness. Did you have buttered popcorn? Oh, I buttered it sort of halfway through the show. You know what I mean? I think we all do. Less seminal fluid. Okay. So I don't know that every. Anyway, I'm just moving on. I don't think that anyone needs to know what what. I mean, I think everyone. Know, you've all seen Psycho. I'm assuming. Are we God just talking about Psycho? You, you have to. How do you talk Psycho. about Psycho without that? Without the spoiler? On uh, well, we don't have to talk about the spoiler, but but it is a great. Here, let's talk about some initial things in Psycho. The premise, right? The first problem of this film. Mm-hmm. It is a great long, long shot from one building sort of slowly creeping toward another building Mm -hmm. through the window of a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, and then into the... And the conversation begins kind of a la um, uh, Coppola's conversation before we actually enter the room, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a great sort of Hitchcock technique. Hitchcock voyeurism, like, at its finest. We get inside the room, and it's it's a a very sort of... um, Hard-edged, erotic sort of scene with with Janet Lee and and her brazier undies and John Garner, who would later become, as your father would tell me over and over again, the ambassador to Mexico. Yes, he was very proud of that. Yep. Um, sure on, on sort of rolling around in bed, you mm-hmm. know, post coitus coital implications, right? And and um, talking about their future together, and it's clear that that John Garner's character Sam, um, it's not a winner. Um, he he's he lives in some other town, right. miles away, and he works at a hardware store. Um, she works for a real estate uh, broker. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. And how are they going to make this happen? It's an affair, um, not an illicit affair, but just this affair that that wouldn't be approved because they're neither one of them. It's a class. He doesn't issue. have the money to marry her. Yeah. She's, she's yeah. He's got issues as far as money that 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 kind of thing. So it actually starts, you know, before the classic sense of what everyone thinks about was like, mm-hmm. it starts with a very sort of a genuine problem, a, a, a money problem, right? right? And of course, where there are money problems, there are, there are problems of ethics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Janet Lee goes back to work. And we see we by run the way right into that ethical problem immediately there. Yeah, well by the and by the way we see for the second and I think maybe the last time Pat Hitchcock Pat. Alfred Hitchcock's unfortunate looking daughter yeah. <laughs> in in one of his films. She, yeah. she had been in Strangers on a Train in 1951 and now in, in 1916 Psycho. So mm-hmm. so the ethical dilemma is that um, this uh, some guy has has asked some drunk sort of Texan who's buying land for his mm-hmm. daughter's wedding has has asked to store forty thousand um, dollars in the the safe in the office. No, not in the office at the bank in the safety deposit box in the bank, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, because she has to she has to take it and go in there to do that. You're right, Tom. Yeah. Sorry. So so she's charged with taking the money to the bank. Right. I guess this is the thing. you just hand over forty thousand dollars to cash to your secretary sure, and said, yeah, please sure. deposit in this. a huge envelope that's barely closing. I mean, come on, dude. So here's her chance. She could yeah. be with Sam. She could mm-hmm. take the money, disappear. These were the days, by the way. This is one of those small things I pine for in life, and I know it's very very sad. But an age before the internet, when not that I would, but you could disappear. I'd like to point out. I, I actually feel you on that, man. I just, I every once in a while, I just, I want that time when you could disappear. Mm. And, and your mother told me recently because she doesn't talk to you that she would like you to disappear. Yeah, just maybe like a like a sock, like a like a toe mm-hmm. with a sock on it, hanging mm-hmm. out, coming out of a garden mm-hmm. bed. I could see that for you. Yeah, October twenty fifth, Oakland. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
octopus literary. <laughs> but so, um, but but yeah, no, but it, but uh, but it, it it takes off from there. So she's got the money in her paws. Yep. She goes to make the break for it. Of course, as she's heading out of town, who does she manage to run into? Her boss. He her, sees her through the window of the car. Her boss and the guy who had given her the money. They're out drinking and being businessmen, yep. essentially. Yeah. So she's got this sort of guilty conscience. She's driving away. And now All, she's caught. There's a great, and by the way, a great series of shots, just to sort of bore you again, where she's driving through the, the rain of Arizona toward California. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all these shots through the windshield. Yeah. And, and, and sort of coupled with her guilty conscience and all the things she's thinking in the, the last, mm-hmm. she's imagining what the guy will say, um, the, the Texas uh, you know, millionaire will say when, when they find out that she's taking the money, right. I'll take it out in her fine young mm-hmm. flesh, she says, in her consciousness, uh, uh, tip of her conscience, and, talk, whatever. I, I agree. But, my pants are typically around my ankles at that point, but yeah. Yep. So I'm just moving through. So, so uh, anyway... Uh, then finally she has to pull over and and it, where does she pull over oh she pulls over to take a nap as i recall yeah she just has to pull over yeah. oh no oh, you're but talking you know, about I'm the just, ultimately I'm forward ultimately she to... pulls into ed Gein's front living room the bates motel bates motel and then yeah. she meets norman bates norman and people bates. that's the thing even if you haven't seen psycho for whatever fucking right. reason you haven't and, mm-hmm. and and please nobody out there tell me you oh i've seen it it was uh, with vince vaughn in 1998 uh, a terrible terrible Shot by shot remake. It's a terrible idea. Why, how, who thought that was a good idea? Who thought Vince Vaughn was a good idea? Unless he ever wants to do our podcast, in which case, oh, oh, we love you. Oh, but, but, um, gargling his balls. Yep. So, uh, we meet Norman Bates. I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is everyone knows, I think Norman Bates is like a cultural icon or yeah. like the Bates Motel mm-hmm. or like the shower scene. Right. It's like Jaws. There are people who haven't seen Jaws, but all you have to do is say, dun, 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 or whatever it is, and people mm-hmm. know they connect with it in some way, right? Right. So, right. so how would you describe Norman Bates, or would you rather describe Anthony Perkins? Um, I think Anthony Perkins, man, because Anthony Perkins made a specialty of out of playing these kinds of characters, these hyper tense young dudes on some kind of a knife's edge. Nineteen fifty-seven, Fear, Fear Strikes Out. Right. This one here, I don't know if you ever saw Desire Under the Elms. I didn't. Lovely movie. Have you seen Mahogany? Diana Ross? No. He plays a creepy photographer. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, you, but uh, you could totally see that because yep. because he was he's like that nice, good-looking guy who's right on the edge of creepy mm-hmm. all the time. And this one sort of pushed him sort of, you know, uh, sort of over the edge on that one. He never was able to sort of escape that afterwards. Like that was always kind of – I think he was always Norman Bates after I that kinda movie. Know, I, I know that as an artist I should feel sorry for anyone who, who gets typecast or trapped, but I, right. I kind of don't when you're – when you're typecast in such a successful, oh, such a successful, such an iconic. I mean, yeah, yeah. iconic. I mean, if you think about this, like Norman Bates, like so many serial killers in movies over the years, yep. is based on. I, I'm never sure if I'm saying it right. Ed Gein or Ed Gein. All right, the guy out of Wisconsin. Right, the guy, right. He made uh, ashtrays and stuff out of his mom's and and other women too. Whoa! I'd like to just be an audience member. Curtis, have you heard the story? Yeah, I, I don't know. Can you tell it to me quickly? Oh, sure. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. That guy's based on him. Norman Bates is, is more or less based on him. He was the first one really based on Ed Gein. He was this guy in Wisconsin who wasn't actively a killer like like a lot of serial killers are, uh-huh. uh, but he was definitely a grave robber. And he did, he did kill, I think, about three women, three or four women or something okay. like that. Uh, but mostly he was all about the arts and crafts and shit he could make with their bodies afterwards. Like a, there was a belt made out of nipples. 
No. You know, ashtrays made out of, made out of this, and and you know, skulls in the fridge, and all this kind of stuff. Wow. So yeah, he was his own thing, and so many, so like Hannibal Lecter, uh, and Buffalo Bill. They're both sure. based on him because he was also a cannibal. Okay. And he would, they caught him in what fifty? I want to say fifty six or okay. fifty five. Yeah. So he was like really hot on the press at the time, and so Norman Bates is somewhat based on that because this guy's Ed Gein's first victim was his mother. Right, and the and the use it, and also he would dress up in her skin yeah. and the whole nine yards. So it was kind of a tamed down little bit of a version of that. But mm -hmm. at the same time, one of the things, um, God, I just want to talk about the structure of the movie. That's one of the things that I find most fascinating. I didn't mean to derail you with that. I was just interested in that. Ed, no, yeah, Ed, Ed Gein, Gein, yeah, okay. he's uh, he's and if you look at him, he's a nothing. Like he's he's like he's really an old shriveled dude in a hunting cap, you know. He's he's such a nothing. Okay. Um, but uh, but one thing that that is fascinating about this movie, and this is you know, fuck you and bless you, Hitch, for being able to do something like this. You know, having the power to take a movie, run it in one direction, and then middle of the movie just change that direction one hundred percent. Right, and I and guess make it a totally different movie. Yeah, I, and I don't know whether it's worth talking about what it is that changes the direction of the film, but it mm -hmm. definitely does change. Which it, it becomes a completely different movie, like yeah. about. Uh, I'm going to say what half, not quite half, but a little like a third of the way in, it yeah. changes its direction altogether. Yeah. And you never saw it coming. And Hubert Hitch could pull it off and do it as smoothly as he pulled it off. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we like that movie for sure. I think, yes. We're double boners all around. Well, yeah. How would you, okay, if you were to pick a film to watch um, with a mother, let's say, one's mother, theoretically, mm -hmm. um, and it weren't psycho. But it was about that kind of like twisted relationship, or or or, or maybe not white heat either. What would you pick? Ooh, um, I, it'd be hard to beat Manchurian Candidate for me. Oh yeah, that's a great one. That's the greatest. That is one of the greatest mother-son relationships. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> mm. Tom, Somebody get me some cheesecake. God damn it. Oh, you'll be okay. <laughs> I must survive. <laughs> I must bury. Someone will pay. love you. Someday someone will love you, Tom. Mother. Someone or something. A cheesecake. Something. Yeah. <laughs> a cheesecake with an enormous heart on. That's coming my way. Wow. <laughs> so much happening here. Mm. Wow, well, what a what a what a good Mother's Day this has been! Absolutely, and I Absolutely. hope all of you out there are having a good Mother's Day. Absolutely, and let me ask you this: yeah. just before we get off here, sure. so if we did, we got gun to your head, Desert Island, you and your mom, what's a movie you'd want to watch with her? Not well, necessarily about mothers, just yeah. a movie you'd like to watch with her that you think would be really good for her and you. Okay, to watch I'm going to be genuine here. I'm not going to go for the laugh here. I think the the film that I would like to watch with my mother because well, there are two of them. One is um, a, a film called Where Angels Go, Trouble Follows. It's with Rosalind Russell. Ooh. Is it Rosalind Russell's from the one from Picnic, right? Oh, yeah. She's older, is in the late 60s. And I think my mom identifies with it because it's about these sort of like, you know, troublesome, wacky girls at a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And Rosalind Russell's like the Mother Mary. Mm. And it's just this sort of like late 60s, almost like Herbie Rides Again level sort of comedy. Sure. So there's that. And then also, my mother really loves Anne of Green Gables. Really? Yeah, she's she's I would say almost obsessed with it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. if your mother cared about you, what well, what general movie would you watch? Well, with okay. So here's a really fun. Okay, this is going to get a little fucked up on you, and my apologies right now. Please. Um, but that movie uh, actually is a movie I watched with your mom. Which one? Jane Eyre. Oh, okay. George C. Scott. This is a, this is the nineteen seventy one version. Mother, George okay. C. Scott watched it with your mom. Yeah. That's like one of those. It's a nice moment that we share. Oh, okay. Yeah, because frankly, your mom is a way better mom than my mom. 
Oh yeah, your me. mom isn't even a mom. Yeah, she's yeah. fucking terrible. Yeah. I kind of actually almost hope she hears this accidentally, and she's just like, yeah, and she shoots herself. She'll figure out why. She'll figure out. Yeah, exactly. she'll figure out how it was all my fault. Don't worry. And then you get pinned for the murder. Oh, and then you're in jail. In the am I in cheesecake jail? You're in cheesecake jail oh, now, Tom. Cheesecake jail. Okay, I think we've gone long enough. Listen, <laughs> thanks for being with us for Mother's Day. All you mothers have a great day absolutely and we're the Fiddleys on film we love classic film we love we love each other we love to argue we love to talk about things it's it's to be mean to each other yeah that's it we love to be mean to each other yeah and you can tell that we actually like each other mostly Mm. all right bye everyone bye cheesecake